uh, and various parts of it. And um, when it comes up to Easter, uh, our intention is obviously to come to the cross and what Christ did on the cross. And I want to look at something that preempted that, but also which we use to remember, and that is the whole question of the Last Supper, beginning from verse 7. Now, it's very, very important to understand the context of the Last Supper, which is the context of the Passover. If you've never, ever done this, do this sometime. In fact, I must talk to Nicola Montgomery or Jews for Jesus or Christian Witnesses, they do this, um, to take place, part in a Passover meal. Uh, I, I took one, uh, it was involved with one in one at Logie's, and it was just, it was excellent. It's really hard to understand communion without the Passover, because the communion, in effect, took over from the Passover, and so much of it is tied up with that. The Lord's Supper is a memorial to the death of Christ, looking forward to the second coming. The body and the blood of Christ are given to the Lord's people. Now, you have to remember the disciples were Jews. They were not Scots used to black pudding. There were no stornaway black puddings. That would have just been absolutely horrendous, considered blasphemous and horrific. That you, don't, you would not have your steak rare. You avoided blood as much as possible. So, <coughs> when the, this is being spoken of here, it is, it, it is horrific to them, but it's also symbolic because blood was considered so precious, it was considered to be the life. Leviticus 17.11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And when we think about communion and we think about uh, the bread and the wine, the wine symbolizing the blood, we are thinking about this marvelous concept of atonement. Now, it's funny what the devil always does with everything is distort it. And so, the teaching about communion in the Bible, which isn't really that difficult to grasp or understand, that has been distorted and twisted. And so, we end up with very complicated teachings. <coughs> For example, <coughs> over the years, the Roman Catholic Church developed the whole idea of the Mass. And if you were taking part in a Mass, you believed that what the priest would be doing, if I was a priest and taking this bread and this wine, what I would be doing is reenacting the sacrifice of Christ, and that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ, and the, blood, and the wine literally becomes the the blood of Christ. And I think insofar as you can make any sense of that, and I still, and I've read loads about it, and I'm not completely thick, and I still find myself, I just don't get it, and I just don't grasp it. But insofar as I do get it, and I do grasp it, um, I'm sorry, there are many things that the Catholic Church teaches that are right, but in this particular thing, it is blasphemous. It's wrong the notion that somehow uh, when we take communion, we're sacrificing Christ again. We're not doing that. There are other Christians for whom um, it's just, there's just so much confusion and teaching about this. I remember 
doing, Dundee's an amazing place, by the way. It's just a great place. You meet all different kinds of interesting people. And if you ever get a chance to do door-to-door, do it in, come and do it with us, because um, I haven't done it for a while. We need to get back to it. But you meet the most fascinating and interesting people, and you can never be prepared for it. There's no formula. And I remember knocking on one door in the, uh, one of the multis in the hill town, near the top of one of the multis. And I knocked on a door, and a man came to the door. And we said, you know, we were from church and just asking people about Christianity. And he looked at me, and he said in a broad Dundonian accent, what do you think about consubstantiation then? Now, I knew what consubstantiation was, but I was mad. I was some qu- I never expected to be sitting discussing consubstantiation in a, in a, in a multi in Dundee. Um, and I was so thankful that I did pay attention during that theology lecture. Uh, consubstantiation is the Lutheran view of communion. And it's not that it becomes literally Christ, but it becomes spiritually Christ, and that's about all I could grasp. Uh, and I, I was amazed at this man just, just talking about consubstantiation. And boy, it was really complicated and really difficult. Um, and I asked him if he was a theologian, and he says, no, I'm a baker. But it was, anyway, <coughs> maybe the bread thing worked for him. But people do get themselves all kind of worked up. And in, in, in the free church as well, you get people have all different kinds of, of ideas. But it's really very simple, and it's really very straightforward. The communion, or Eucharist, or whatever you want to call it, the Last Supper, is a replacement for the Passover. The Passover was a sign of the old covenant. This is a sign of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law (coughs) in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. When sacrifice took place in the Old Testament, it took place in the temple. You had to go to Jerusalem. It was messy. It was bloody. It was was, uh, once or twice a year. To get access to God, you had to go through various, not just rituals, but various courts and so on. And only the high priest could go right into the inner court, and that only once a year. And the writer to the Hebrews, writing to the Jews, says, you know, this is so much better because of what Jesus has done once for all. You don't reenact it. Once for all, we have access to the holy of holies, to the most holy place. And what we are doing this evening is we have access into what even the, I, I don't believe even the high priest, Aaron and all his descendants, had access into the presence of God in the way we do. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus Nazarene. I have met a huge number of non-Christians who say, it's very difficult for me to believe in God because your God seems so small. And I, I agree with that, actually. I think we sometimes treat God in such a way uh, that, that makes Him, we, we sing about His greatness, but it appears so trivial. 
And communion, for me, is just one of the most sacred things that we can ever be involved in because it's about the very heart and the very essence of, of the universe and of God and of love and all that is involved. And when Jesus set this up, just before he died, as, they, as, they, as he celebrated the Passover and as there was this kind of transition, it is something that he did not just for these disciples, but that he did for us. And we take the communion and we do so not because it's magic and we do so not because we're good. We do so simply because Christ died for us when we survey the wondrous cross. Let me say three things from this passage about the Passover and the Lord's Supper that was true of, of both of them, of, of what occurred at this particular one. First of all, it was a time of betrayal. Judas sat at the Lord's table. That is just a really, really important thing. Judas came and sat at the Lord's table. If you look at verse 21, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. I think that's just an extraordinary uh, statement. Verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I don't know. If I was Judas, I'd probably thinking, he knows, right, I'm not going to do this. He knows. But human sinfulness and human intransigence is so strong that even though we know we will do it, you and I both know that we can sit and we can drink the wine and we can take the bread and we know that we're going to betray Christ. We know that we are betraying Christ. He betrayed the hospitality, and he betrayed the friendship of Christ. Now, the question is, who should sit at the Lord's table? Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, said this, not going to the Lord's table is a sign of widespread ignorance or callous indifference to a divine precept. There are people who say, well, I can't sit at the Lord's table. I can't take communion I can't because, because I don't want to be Judas. But that's a, a mistake in lots and lots of ways. The Judases are the people who take the bread and the wine and who do so without faith in Christ and without conscience. Sometimes someone will come into a communion service, never been in a church before, and they see everyone taking the bread and the wine. And they say, oh, I'm supposed to do that. And I wouldn't do this now, but once I went and sat beside a man and said, do you know what's happening? And he said, no, not really. And I said, that, in that cup, that's wine. And he said, well, alcohol. And I said, yeah. He said, oh, I want some. I said, no, that's, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. I said, we take it because we're remembering who Jesus is. And this was all while the, one of the Psalms was going on. And I said, are you a Christian? And he says, oh, no, no, no. I said, well, you don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't take it. Just because everyone else around you is, you don't take it. This is a really solemn, it's a really serious thing. You're professing faith in Christ. You're taking what is very precious and very special and very holy because it's all about Christ. And you are feeding on Christ. As I said, not literally. Judas didn't really have a conscience. He said, surely not I, which was just a lie. It's not going to be me, is it? 
The others asked, Lord, is it me? Is it me? A healthy mistrust of self. I think I don't want to discourage people from taking communion, but I do want to to encourage a degree of self-examination as we (coughs) look to Christ, which sounds a bit of a contradiction. But the self-examination is this. We're just looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't want to betray you. I don't want to let you down. I don't want to say things or do things or be someone who brings disgrace to the name of Christ. So, perhaps instead of just simply saying, it's not me, it's not me, I won't do it, we could, we could ask, Lord, is it I? And help me, help me not to betray you and <coughs> not to turn away from you. So, that in, in that sense, this Last Supper was a time of betrayal and is deeply poignant because of that. But it's also a time for great humility. Look what the disciples did, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." While Christ was preparing to suffer, while Christ was undergoing the agony of Gethsemane, while Christ was taking a meal which predicted his death, which the Jews had for centuries celebrated as the Passover lamb, Christ knew that the Passover lamb in Exodus was just a symbol. (coughs) It was not the blood of bulls and goats that took away sin. He knew it was about him. And he's at a meal, which is the last meal for him. A meal which says, you're going to be broken, and your blood's going to be poured out, and you're going to carry the sin of humanity. The deepest hurt I think Christ would feel would be when he felt rejected by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the second deepest hurt was surely this one. When with his disciples, who he had trained, whom he had taught, who he had witnessed to in terms of his miracles and in terms of his teaching, at this very last meal, when they should have been the ones comforting him and strengthening him and encouraging him, they were fighting among themselves about who would be the greatest. We need to learn to take pleasure in the prosperity of others and have the lowest view for ourselves. John 3.30, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Philippians 2.3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. True humility isn't, oh, I'm useless, I'm out here. True humility is just recognizing who Christ is, and it leads us, I think, to service and not in action. One man puts it this way, I thought it was beautifully put. Usefulness in the world and the church, a humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to any good work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post however lowly and discharge any office however unpleasant, if we can only promote happiness and holiness on earth. These are the true tests of Christian greatness. Worldly greatness is when you want to reign, when you want people to acknowledge you and to give you what you want. 
Christian greatness is a, a, a humility that says, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll put my hand to any good work. I'll happily do whatever is required. We use a lot of warrior image, imagery in our Christianity, and that's correct in some ways. But far more often is the imagery, imagery that's used here a kind of the person who is kind-hearted and hard-working. We can all be useful and kind in that way. So, as we, as we take communion together, it should be a time for us of great humility as we contemplate and reflect on the love that Jesus has for us. And I think that we should consciously, self-consciously, ask the Lord to forgive us for our arrogance and our pride and our too ready acceptance of the me generation. It's, we, we should, as we sit and, and as we receive the bread and the wine, we should ask the Lord to give us a desire to humbly serve other people. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper or the Passover here was a time for loyalty. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The communion, you see, just as the Passover was just a sign, the communion is a sign. It's a sign of what Christ has done, but it's a sign also of Christ returning and it's a, it's a foretaste of what is to come now. Please don't, I'm, I'm not trying to be irreverent when I say this, but you know how you get an appetizer? The communion is an appetizer, as holy and as sacred as it is. It is nothing compared to the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the hors d'oeuvre, if you want to be posh. It's the appetizer. And it's, it's extraordinary that that is the case. You stood by me, says Jesus, and I remember my friends. The devil seeks to cause us to fall. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. You know how wheat is sifted? Probably not. You would be put in a, in a kind of uh, round barrel type thing and really shaken. And Jesus is saying to Simon, the devil wants to take you and shake you up. But I prayed for you and I prayed that your faith will not fail. And then, this is an extraordinary line, when you have turned back, in other words, when it has failed, when you've fallen and you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Simon doesn't listen. He doesn't think he's weak. He doesn't think he's frail. <coughs> he's the rock. He's Peter. He's the one who's strong. Others may fail. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus tells him, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. It's a time for loyalty. Christ intercedes for us so that we will not fall to destruction. 
God brings good out of evil. He can cause the weakness and infirmities of the members of his church to work together for the benefit of the whole body of his people. Simon was weak. He didn't know he was weak. That was his greatest weakness. He stumbled and he fell. He betrayed Jesus Christ, not in the same way as Judas, but nonetheless, he betrayed Jesus Christ. And when he betrayed him, he wept, and he wept. He didn't know himself. And it's funny, Jesus had to have another meal with Simon. He had to have breakfast with him after the resurrection on the seashore or on the lake shore. He had to have breakfast with him and reaffirm Simon's role and Christ's love for him. Sometimes we come to the Lord's table, and you and I could be at the Lord's table this evening, and we're thinking, we have so let Jesus down. We have not been the loyal, faithful ones. We have, you know, just made so many mistakes. And Jesus says, but I prayed for you. I didn't just invite you to this table. I prayed for you. It's an extraordinary thing. I love it when people say to me, David, we're praying for you, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. With all due respect to all of those, all of you who do that, and it's very important that that is the case, how much more wonderful is it to hear Jesus say, I prayed for you? In fact, when we take communion, what we're hearing from Jesus is, I died for you, I've forgiven you, I pray for you, I strengthen you. That's why the communion is a meal. That's why, because it feeds our souls spiritually. I think that the Passover was for believers. The Lord's Supper is for all believers. We're not to concentrate on Judas, and we're not to concentrate on on ourselves, but we are to concentrate on Christ. It's a time for humble reflection, renewed service, and rededicated loyalty to Christ, as well as praise and thanksgiving. So, if you are a Christian, when we take communion in a moment, I want you to thank the Lord for what He has done for you, to confess if you have any hatred towards or bitterness or resentment towards any other Christian, to acknowledge your own weakness and infirmity, and to pray that Christ would renew and fill and strengthen you, and to commit yourself to a a, a rededicated service and a rededicated loyalty to Him. That's what I love about Christianity. I love what Jesus does. He asks us to follow Him, and we think, okay, okay, I'm going to do this, and then we do it, and then we fail, and we think, that's it, I'm out of here. I've failed the test. And Jesus just smiles and says, keep coming. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. We, there is constant renewal, and there is constant forgiveness. One of the many, many great things that Martin Luther taught, and for me, probably, apart from justification by faith, the greatest, was the idea of continual repentance or daily repentance. Daily repentance is not you beating yourself up and coming to God and saying, oh, I'm rotten and I'm miserable and I'm useless and I can't do anything and being spiritually and physically and emotionally crippled by a sense of our own inadequacy. That's not daily repentance. Daily repentance is coming to God and saying, I did it again. I got it wrong again. 
I let you down again. I said the wrong word again. I didn't do the right thing there. And the Lord says, but I died for you and I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. And we go and we sin and he comes back and says, go and sin no more. And we just keep going. And that's why it's really, really good for us to take communion as well because there's that sense in which in this, this symbol and in this picture, you are being told by Jesus I know you lied. I know you're a hypocrite. I know you've been pretending in your faith. I know you haven't read your Bible for ages or you've just skimmed through it. I know your prayer life is pathetic. I know all these things about you, but this is what I did for you. Now repent and go and do it again. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Daily, take up your cross and follow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Passover that the Israelites celebrated to remind them of their redemption in Israel, in, in Egypt. We thank you, O Lord, for the Passover that you, Lord Jesus, took in the Last Supper. And it amazes us that though you were about to die, you still patiently taught your quarreling and squabbling and treacherous disciples. And Lord, we are like them. We're so arrogant. We confess that. We think we stand. We're so self-absorbed. We're looking for something for ourselves. It's amazing that if we were to see what we were really like, we would just run away. But you invite us. You see what we're really like. You know what we're really like. That's why you died for us. Not because of any good within us, but you died to make us good. You died to forgive us. And so as we receive this bread and this wine from you, we do so thanking you that it unites us to one another and it unites us to you and thanking you that it is a symbol of great forgiveness. Lord, bless us as we share together in your name. Amen.